Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Um, just as a point of information, and it was mentioned in passing uh, at the beginning, Peter McCormick is retiring from the University of Lethbridge, and Ian is actually here as a speaker at that program tomorrow. Um, they would like you to know that it starts at 8.30 in the morning at Andy's Place at the University of Lethbridge. It is free to the public. Um, Ian is the first speaker at, they think, 9 o'clock, and it goes all day. So drop in tomorrow and, and give Peter a handshake and a good luck, goodbye, and just sounds like an interesting day. Okay, so we'll come back now um, to our program. Just before I do that, I would like to announce next week's program. And the title for next week is Indefinite Detention Without Charges in Canada. Really? And our speaker is Sophie Harcat, and she'll be moderated with Lisa Lambert. Now, and this goes twice next week. It is on Wednesday at um, the University um, First Choice Savings Credit Center. And Sophie Harcat is the speaker there again with the moderator, Emma Ladcour. And then next week, regular time here on Thursday. So, Ian, I'll have you back, and we will have questions from the floor on ethics in politics. Thank you very much. Not anymore. Is this on? Am I on? Are you on? Oh, okay. Hi, my name is Henning Mundel, and thanks for your overview of uh, um, ethics and conflict of interest, in, uh, especially with emphasis on, on politicians. What guidelines are there in place, whether for federal or provincial Alberta, uh, cabinet ministers and uh, MPs and MLAs in relation to the conflict of interests as they relate to spouses, family members, relatives, and so on. And yes, what would you recommend in that connection? Yeah. I'm with regard to the, the federal legislation and the, uh, the, the Code of Conduct in the House of Commons, um, spouses and family members are, are covered as well. So, that's why when, when uh, Paul Martin became the, the, the Prime Minister, uh, he, he, uh, he sold his uh, interest in Canada steamships to his sons. Now, they were, uh, they were, they were not underage, so, so the, the, the guidelines just cover uh, family members that, uh, uh, that, that are minors. Uh, <clears throat> but there was, there was a big controversy about that uh, at the time of uh, uh, Joe Clark and Pierre Trudeau when... Uh, um, uh, the the um, there was a big debate amongst MPs as to whether the the spouses and and uh, minor children should be covered, and at that point uh, many of the women said no they shouldn't be because that's uh, that's condescending to them. Well, I remember when when I was in in Lethbridge, my wife was a, a chartered accountant and an auditor. I was covered by her firm's guidelines, 
so that uh, I wouldn't get her into a conflict of interest. So it makes perfect sense that spouses definitely are covered. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> perhaps it should be broader than just minor children. Uh, but and I'm pretty sure that's the case in Alberta as well. Very good question. Uh, Maria Fitzpatrick. And um, a month ago, just about a month ago, I retired from the federal public service after 32 and a half years. Uh, so I would like your thoughts on, um, in my department, um, there's been a multitude of changes in legislation over the last eight years. And I would say probably 90% of the staff in my department knew that this legislation was wrong. In terms of ethics, um, should the staff of my department uh, have done something? Now, what was your department? Are you able to say that? Correctional Service of Canada. Ah, yes. I no mm-hmm. longer work for them, so I can share that. <laughs> well, I'll put on my hat uh, as someone who that teaches public administration in Canada. And <clears throat> what, what public administrators are supposed to do is explain government decisions. They're not supposed to take sides. They, they don't get involved... In, in politics, certainly at the upper levels and at the lower levels, it's pretty limited, as you know. Um, but I think that uh, all public servants have, have um, um, a duty to speak truth to power. Uh, and uh, <coughs> Lorene Harrison may, may remember there are times that I, I went to her and said, I don't agree with this policy. Uh, and she would tell me why I was wrong, but she was usually right. But I felt I had a duty to at least say that uh, the, these are my thoughts and I'm, I'm just worried about the consequences. And also, uh, uh, I remember speaking to a couple of, um, uh, of ministers of social services saying that I, I think this policy is, is, is dangerous. Uh, but at the same time, then I would the next day have to go out and explain the policy uh, in, in a neutral fashion. Uh, my staff found that hard to understand, but but I felt you know that's ethically the right thing to do. You have to, uh, if, if you're going to stay in the public service, you have to explain the policy and carry it out. But if you think it's wrong, you 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 have a responsibility to to try to do what you can to bring about changes. Sometimes that means that sometimes you 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 have to uh, uh, get another job. <clears throat> so it's it's not it's not uh, it's not an easy commitment to meet. It's a great question. Uh, Terry Shellington. Ian, thank you so much for being here, and uh, you delivered a very thorough, uh, enlightening uh, presentation. Uh, However, I was interested in what I heard as your blessing upon lobbyists and uh, your your commendation for the many good pieces of legislation that they bring. And let me raise my concern as a question. Like, are there lobbyists for single parents? Are there lobbyists for for people on social assistance? Um, are there paid lobbyists for students around uh, tuition and that sort of thing? And when volunteer groups like Kairos and uh, some women's groups and church groups um, uh, lobby on behalf of their concerns in a volunteer fashion, they're immediately put under pressure by the federal government, at least, around their charitable status. So you'd have to explain some more to me about how lobbyists are part of a fair and wonderful universe. <coughs> That's a good question. And, and I guess I, I should say in the best of all possible worlds, they, they can be part of a fair and wonderful universe. It depends on their ethics. 
<coughs> and keep in mind that lobbyists are not only hired guns. That's one type of lobbyist. But the other type of lobbyist uh, are people that work in-house, um, people that work for, let, let's say, an association of, of, of single parents. Uh, they're also lobbyists if they if they contact uh, um, ministers or people with uh, senior public servants. So they have to register as well. And and I think if you look at the lobbyist register for Alberta and the federal one, they're, they're more of the second type than, than the first type. Um, <clears throat> but the important thing is that we, we avoid undue influence. And undue influence uh, is, is where uh, a particular lobbyist, for example, uh, has uh, an unfair advantage in terms of uh, presenting their point of view as compared uh, as, as compared to others, uh, and that could be in terms of financial interests, um, could be in terms of friendships. Um, <clears throat> for example, uh, uh, very recently, some some uh, federal cabinet ministers in Ontario got into trouble because lobbyists. Uh, organized fundraising raising events for them. And that's clearly contrary to the Federal Conflict of Interest Code and the, the, uh, the federal lobbyist legislation. And it was so embarrassing for <clears throat> some of the conservative writing associations. They came up with, with a code of ethics uh, in terms of the, their dealings with lobbyists. So... Um, it's, it's important for, for lobbyists to behave ethically and for there to be some, something to enforce that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, would you comment then on the fairness of volunteer groups uh, being subjected to pressure precisely because they do lobby on behalf of their concerns? <clears throat> I think that's a, a, mis, a misunderstanding of democracy. They should not be. We should celebrate uh, all points of view and encourage them even if we disagree with them. So... <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. Yes. Thank you very much for your presentation. I'm Mary Shillington, the other half of that guy. Uh, um, I'm a retired clinical social worker, and I agree with you about lobbying. Uh, I proudly have uh, a red mark on my old file at Lethbridge Family Services because I lobbied for a, a staff person, a couple of staff people, and against the policy that was being inflicted upon them. So I agree that lobbying is very important. My question, uh, and I, it came up for me when uh, Mary Dawson was interviewed uh, on CBC, I can't, can't remember if it was last night or the night before, around the whole investigation around Diane Finley. And, and it seems really um, not sensible that there's no enforcement of that, that the only enforcement is whatever the Prime Minister decides is going to happen. What would it take to get a proper enforcement of the findings that the people like Mary, uh, Mary Dawson uh, bring forward? What would it take to get some enforcement in, to do with that that's other than a very political, uh, oh, she's a she's great uh, cabinet minister, I'm not going to do anything about it kind of thing? Excellent question. <clears throat> and I think we have to keep in mind that when the Canadian model was developed, first of all in Ontario in 1988, uh, this was new. And so it was an experiment. And it was thought in those days that uh, uh, it, it's not proper for the commissioner to be able to enforce uh, findings because that that's a violation of legislative supremacy, which is one of our uh, foundational constitutional principles. You have to leave it up to the uh, 
the, the elected legislature to decide what the consequences are. And if, you, if they take no action, if you don't like their action, you don't vote for them the next time round. But that's, that, that theory has been found to be deficient. And, for example, in Toronto, the uh, integrity commissioner uh, can, can uh, fine members of council who have violated the guidelines for up to three months of their salary. So that's the enforcement that can be uh, meted out. And, and in fact, Mary Dawson does have in- enforcement uh, uh, powers with regard to members of parliament who don't fill out their disclosures or don't fill them out on time. They can be fined. You can go onto her website and find a whole list of uh, people from all parties who have been fined because they haven't filled out their disclosure statements thoroughly or on time. So that's a start. But uh, maybe thinking about uh, being able to impose uh, uh, financial constraints, it it would certainly get more headlines uh, and be more embarrassing. And I think we really do need to embarrass people that deliberately break the rules. Uh, I'm Trevor Page. I want to pick up on your answer to a previous questioner's question where I think you said that lobbyists should be ethical. My question deals with people, young people, who decide probably when they're at university to become politicians. And uh, it would seem that these days we have many politicians who become politicians for a career. The pay is good, the perks are good, the power is there. It's not ethics or conviction that drives them. Now, that might be outside your scope of research, but I wonder whether you have any comments on that. And whether you think, when you compare Canada with other countries, or some other countries, we're packaging a whole bunch of rules around things, uh, which are a bit woolly, but make us feel good in terms of ethics and politics. There's a, there's a number of very good questions there. Um, I, I'm suspicious of anyone that runs for politics that hasn't had significant experience in the real world. So that is definitely a concern of mine. Uh, and uh, we, we need to encourage more people, uh, good people, to run for politics. And one of the ways to do that is to, uh, to cut down on the, uh, the number of scandals that we have that discourages everyone from getting involved, except the people that want to become career politicians, perhaps. Um, so, so that's why I'm, I'm so much in favor of rules that work, because it, it helps to cut down on the scandals. Um, but I, I do think it's important for people to have that real-world experience. I, I think that professors need to have some real-world experience before they start talking, <laughs> uh, trying to teach their students uh, about how the world should be changed. So that's, that's I think, helpful for all of us. Uh, just trying to think of some of your other questions uh, that, that are involved. Uh, in, in terms of um, ethics for, uh, for lobbyists, federally there is a code of conduct now for the uh, federal lobbyists. And you can see it on the lobbyist registrar's website. Um, it's, it's a fairly good code of conduct. It's, it's had a lot of input from the lobbyists themselves. But it is enforceable in that uh, the commissioner has found lobbyists who violate the code of conduct. Uh, They cannot register as a lobbyist again 
for a period of years. So there's there's a, a financial punishment there. They they lose their job if they're if they're found to be unethical. And of course, the uh, all we have to sell is our reputations, all of us. But for lobbyists, if they lose their reputation, they're not going to get more work. So uh, I think progress is being made slowly. But this is, you know, relatively new in Canada, so it's still in the experimental stage. Frank, thank you for coming to ask a question. <laughs> thank you very much, and thank you for the for the ovation for the littlest and the oldest guy here. Bless you. Anyway, thank you. The name of Frank Tiles, as you said. Uh, I always ask the basic, the fundamental questions. I don't know what, how it happens to me, but uh, you know, the firstly the uh, possibly the smartest electoral official and with knowledge about elections, honesty, what have you, has said several times all Canadian public that uh, if we had a decent elect electoral system, we'd all have, always have a minimum, we'd never have a majority government, which would be true democracy. Now, you and Mr. McCormick has done a credible job get, get, getting the general public this fantastic information you got. So what's the value of it? when seriously a 36% numerical government is running the country now. What, what, what is the purpose of it all? doesn't matter how honest you are. We have a minority numerical government pushing through thousands of mammoth legislation because they know they're falsely in power. So is there ever going to be a correction to this system where a 51% of the public vote is going to put in a government, local, federal, provincial? Very, very good questions, Frank. Um, and there, there do need to be reforms. Uh, I was involved with, with students who did research for the... Uh, um, there was a commission on electoral reform in Ontario a few years ago that suggested that we... 20% of the members of the Ontario legislature should be uh, elected by proportional representation. And uh, this would mean that uh, uh, the, well, as you say, there would be far fewer majority governments uh, and the, the representation in the legislature would be, uh, would be more like pr proportional representation without losing the advantages of the single-member constituency system. I thought it was a terrific idea but the, uh, the people of Ontario uh, voted against it. Uh, and I think that's because the, the vote was held uh, in, in the fall when people aren't paying too much attention. It's the beginning of a new uh, session of, of work for most of us. Uh, you've just finished your summer holidays. You're getting your kids back to school. Uh, so there's not much time to think of politics. So I think, uh, you know, if the election had been in the spring... Uh, more people would have voted in favor of it because they would have understood it. Um, then there is a similar uh, referendum on reform of the voting system in B.C. that came very close to passing. The election was in the spring. I think that's why people paid more attention. And, and I hope that eventually this, this will happen. We need to have that sort of electoral reform. The ele chief electoral officer for Ontario very recently recommended uh, about thinking making voting compulsory. Uh, there are advantages and disadvantages to it, uh, but uh, 
we've, we've had a century to look at the system in Australia where it's compulsory. It seems to have more advantages than disadvantages. Um, that might be a reform that we could consider. Now, <clears throat> we're coming up to elections in Alberta and pretty soon federally. Uh, I think the best way to have a reform is get politicians to commit themselves to a reform before the election. Then they, they, they're committed to putting it into place. So all of us have a, ch- a chance to get involved and, and get people to commit themselves to some of the reforms that, that you would like to see, Frank. My name is uh, Knut Peterson. Ian, thanks for making your trip a little bit earlier so you could speak to Sakpa for tomorrow's uh, Peter McCormick tribute. Uh, my question is related to while we may have better rules and regulations around ethics and integrity now, uh, do you see the... the uh, lines of ethics and integrity being more blurred now than they used to be? And and another question would be relating to uh, these uh, people. I can bring uh, Kevin Page, the Parliamentary Secretary on Budget, uh, as an example. Are those terms uh, limited or can they actually be renewed because if they can be renewed, there will be less likelihood of them being uh, really honest about what's going on. So what are your thoughts on that? If well, you get a really good one, uh, it would be nice to keep them, but they may not speak out as they do if, uh, if the limits weren't uh, limited. Uh, the, let me deal with that second question first, because I think the, the promise that the Conservatives made uh, in 2006 that if, if elected there would be a parliamentary budget officer. They had to keep that promise and that's been a really wonderful reform. But then they got a budget officer who was honest and they didn't like it. <laughs> so uh, in spite of that, the, the, the new budget officer I think is doing a pretty good job because it's a limited term. Um, he can't be fired uh, during that term and so he has the power to, to speak truth to power. So, so I, th- I think it's an innovation that you know could be improved because I think the office needs more uh, a bigger budget. But, but I think that's one way forward. Uh, in in terms of the the blurred lines, I think with regard to conflict of interest, uh, the the what a conflict of interest is and how to avoid it, I don't think that's ever been clearer in Canadian history than it is today. So, we have bright lines there. But in in other areas, we we still need to work on on deciding, you know, what is acceptable, what is not acceptable. Uh, In terms of undue influence and and lobbyists, which we've talked about a bit today, uh, the lines are still blurred. Um, In in terms of uh, uh, expenses, the lines are still a bit blurred. What is acceptable and not acceptable for a senator to expense? Uh, In Ontario, once again, because of uh, scandals, um, all uh, members of the legislature and senior public servants have to have their their, their expense claims reviewed by the uh, by the integrity commissioner, and uh, then the the results of that review are posted. So we we have transparency in terms of we know what people are spending on their expenses, but the integrity commissioner signs off. Yes, this is legal. What they they spent the money on. So that's. Uh, uh, 
I, I'm, my, my personal feeling is that that's a step forward too. And maybe that's what the Senate should adopt. We have time for the three questioners at the, at the mic, but no more after that. Hi, my name is Ingrid Hess. I have a question, and it pertains to the activities of the Canada Revenue Agency. And as it's been reported, we're led to believe that um, there's some partisan pressure being put on um, the public servants who conduct the uh, investigations into certain charities and their charitable status. Yet uh, the government just stands there and says, no, it's not. No, we're not. No, we're not. And it seems to me... it. It seems pretty damn obvious, actually, that they are because, you know, the Fraser Institute, the most notoriously pro-conservative think tank, if you can call it that, um, you know, isn't getting investigated. They're funded by notoriously partisan people from including the Koch brothers. So um, you, you have to, you know, think that, it should be pretty easy to investigate that. Are public servants being pressured to investigate agencies or, or charities that don't uh, conform to the government's uh, agendas? Or uh, it should be pretty easy. Would any of your ethical uh, frameworks work in terms of bringing to light such uh, nefarious uh, um, conduct on the part of the government and the people in government and working in government who are willing to do that or or at least alleviate this um, you know, uh, idea in the public that, yes, uh, it is improper how things are being done. I mean, if it isn't improper and they're just randomly picking, you know, agencies that uh, advocate on behalf of death and dying, for example, and pull their charitable status because it's some, you know, absolutely... Um, proper process, fine, let's know. But how would any of your frameworks work for investigating that kind of situation? A couple of them might help. Um, just thinking back to the Diane Finley situation, um, she inv- investigated, uh, the Mary Dawson investigated because she'd seen newspaper reports, and I think they came from anonymous sources uh, that, uh, that she was uh, uh, pressuring to have that particular application accepted which is a conflict of interest. Um, and uh, so perhaps the same thing could happen with, reg- with regard to this situation. It would be um, uh, useful if, if, a pub- if a public servant was being pressured. They could do, do two things, uh, and perhaps they ought to do both. One is to um, tell Mary Dawson that uh, undue pressure is being brought to bear by a minister. Uh, another would be to, and so that she could investigate, Another would be to go to the whistleblowing commissioner, uh, and that that might lead to an investigation and and uh, um, public transparency about what's happening. I should say though that the whistleblowing legislation that we have federally uh, is is not uh, as, as strong as it should be, uh, and it, it doesn't go as far as it needs to go to pr- to really truly protect whistleblowers. We need to look at similar legislation in other countries, especially Australia, where it, it does work, and some parts of the United States where it works. But it didn't work for the first three years in Canada, and it's working a little bit now. So going to the whistleblowing commissioner might might be career-limiting, but it certainly would be a way of, uh, of getting, uh, getting an investigation. 
Hello, my name's Yvonne Jones, and thank you for your presentation. I just wanted to comment on what you're talking about, Australia. I lived there for 23 years, and while I appreciated the compulsory voting part, the representational voting sometimes was a little skewed, I thought, because there were three main parties, and the two parties who had similar uh, viewpoints often ganged up on the third party. And so really, it didn't work how it was supposed to, in my opinion, anyway. So, your comment? No, I, I think that that's a, a very valid comment. There are strengths and weaknesses. I think another country that we could look to uh, that, that might be more helpful is New Zealand. Uh, they, they don't have compulsory voting, but they do have proportional representation. But they... they, they that's right. They, they got there after... Uh, uh, a lot of consultation, a lot of l looking at systems in other countries, a lot of public debate. So I'd like to see that uh, that happen in Canada. I think it would be very enlightening. My name is Frances Schultz, and thank you so much for your presentation. I'm wondering what happens on situations of insider information. For example... Uh, we had the case out at seven persons where the community pasture was going to be sold off at a dollar an acre to a PC person. Public uproar stopped it, but would there have been anything else available in investigation in this? Uh, that's that's not a, an example I'm familiar with. Can you say a little bit more about it? The community pasture that was being used by the ranchers in the area for many years was going to be sold off to a local PC person uh, for a dollar an acre. And public uproar stopped this. Um, that's the sort of situation where uh, I think it would be a criminal code violation. To have that insider information it would be fraud, which is a very, very serious offense. Um, and and so, if the uh, the police were to be involved in that sort of thing, I, I think that could could stop it. Now, the other thing uh, about fraud investigations is that until recently, um, many police forces have not had the expertise to do the sort of investigation uh, with regard to fraud under the criminal code. The RCMP does have that uh, expertise now. Because Canada has uh, legislation that that uh, punishes um, corporations and individuals for bribing foreign officials, and we, we we were pressured into getting this legislation by the United States and by Britain. Then we got it, and we didn't do anything with it uh, because we we didn't have the investigative resources. Now we do, and I think that the reason that uh, we we. Uh, <laughs> Senator Duffy has been charged with so many offenses, and there's so much evidence there. The same police uh, unit that is doing the international corruption now has the expertise to look into to that sort of fraud. Um, <clears throat> so um, perhaps the RCMP could, could draw on resources in that, that newly specialized area to do that sort of investigation. There might be more of a chance of a conviction but I think that's probably the, the best place to go. Thank you so much, Ian, for joining us today, and have a wonderful time tomorrow with your celebration with Peter.